Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I am your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm your other host, Paul Keelan. And today we're here with an exciting guest. We have Matt Belenke on the pod. And Matt writes for a ton of film sites. He's a freelance film Twitter enthusiast. He has a ton of articles in the now defunct Neotechs. Uh, what drew us to him was his appearance on Cow's Pod uh, with Justin Koo and Laura. And he had a great episode on there on Basic Instinct. He also wrote a long article, or at least an extensive article, a comprehensive article. It's both covers a lot of territory and it's not too long. So you should check it out. It's on Massive Cinema and it's called Poker Face. And so what better guest to introduce us to the world of poker as we start this new series on Cinematic Underdogs than Matt. So welcome to the pod, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. Love your pod. And I'm excited to dig into the uh, nefarious world of underground and overground uh, gambling. Love it. I love it. Yes, because that is already a good contrast to start off with, right? There is sort of this subterranean world of poker and the like mainstream world of poker. And as I was digging into it the last few weeks, I was starting to sniff out how different those two cultures are, but also how they shape each other and speak with each other, communicate with each other. And we'll definitely see that in Rounders because it's it's a film that really plays off those two worlds. But before we get too deep into that, Matt, let's get to know a little bit about you for our audience. Uh, you're also an executive producer, right, of indie films. Can you tell our audience uh, about uh, some of the films you've produced recently? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the ones I'm excited about, it was released last year, had a small release locally in, in New York, played at a couple of theaters, which, which was cool to see. I even took a friend to see the premiere. And as the credits rolled, I was like, oh, shit, what if they don't include me in the credits? So, you know, <laughs> I, I would have made up everything about being part of this film. But that was fun to see. It's called Goodbye Petrushka. And it's a coming of age story about a, a young woman who kind of upends her life in the States and moves to Paris to kind of recreate herself. And she uh, lives with a sort of a family there that's that's not hers. And she's dealing with kind of bureaucratic ins and outs, finds love at the hands of a kind of failed figure skater who's also trying to find himself. And it's sort of her navigating um, her way. And it's very quirky and, and sweet. And it was made during the pandemic. And it's kind of uh, my first foray into exec producing. And it was, it was fun to be a part of. That sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, is there is it on any platforms right now? Is there anywhere to find it? it? It was featured in a deadline article that a distribution company acquired it. So hopefully it'll play in theaters in the next, I think, six months to a year. So that, that's pretty neat. And I'm assuming mostly art, art house or indie theaters, but it's on Amazon Prime to rent right now. Um, and it's written, directed, I, I failed to mention uh, stupidly. Uh, Nicola Rose is the writer director and she's uber talented, has it's a bit of a personal story for her because she also has um, a past in, in figure skating and uh, she speaks French, although she grew up in the States. So this project kind of shadows her life in a big way. Awesome. I mean, with the figure skate, skating angle, we could even maybe cover it when we do when we do like I, Tanya <laughs> and some of those other great figure skating movies. Segwaying really quickly now into sports movies, our topic, right? I want to know a little bit about your own history, Matt, because I know you love a few sports movies a lot. Um, and we love to throw first time guests on the spot. <laughs> I don't think we've thrown anyone more on the spot than now, but I would love to hear your top three uh, sports movies, not of all time or anything, but maybe the first three that come to mind and just like three sports movies you love. Yeah. Um, great, great question. I think number one for me would be one that I saw during a Q&A a couple weeks ago, uh, which is Bull Durham, the uh, 1988, I believe, uh, Ron Shelton film. It took me a long time to see it. I, I saw it only during the pandemic as one of those movies that I know 
I needed to see and people talked about it for a long time, but I was kind of shook by, first of all, how good the music was. I believe there's like a Criterion article up right now about the masculinity dynamic between the different uh, music that shows up when Costner is on a scene versus Tim Robbins. So it's a good read. And I mean, Sarandon is just like a force of nature in that. And during the Q&A here in, in New York at Film Forum, Sarandon was a surprise appearance during the Q&A and she kind of choked up. Uh, during the process saying this was like the most supported she felt during the making of a film and it was early on in her career and she obviously eventually married tim robbins so kind of sparked the romance on screen kind of you know sparked more afterwards so i think that's that's number one it feels like like rocky has to be there as a pittsburghian i, th I think we felt some affinity towards rocky because it was a philadelphia movie a totally different vibe of a city but there was something amazing about that story because he wrote, starred in it. Uh, it wins Best Picture, kind of the arrival of a, a superstar in, in many ways. And there were so many iconic scenes that people seem to recreate on the fly when they visit Philadelphia and uh, what that meant for like the trajectory of a sports movie, what, what the, uh, the arc of, of a character could be, I think was influenced largely in part because of that film. That's two. And then Kind of on the fly, I, I think I love Moneyball, but uh, Jerry Maguire, which is sort of an agent, right? It's less about a particular team or sports, but Jerry Maguire, that was a big moment uh, growing up when kind of the, that was the first time I realized that the Oscars were a thing and it could be a thing that people talked about after it happened, like Cuba Gooding Jr. winning and uh, just going crazy at, at the award ceremony. It was the birth of uh, Renee Zellweger as this star figure for many years. And uh, Tom Cruise kind of having fun with the role, but also being stressed out, but also having a good time. And then kind of Cameron Crowe's uh, musical touch also. He was always so good at whatever music was sort of big at the time and, and employing that in smart ways. And in that, it was uh, Tom Petty's Free Falling when there's a short scene when Tom Cruise is like riding in the car that always sticks in my mind. So quotable. And that's kind of what you want from a sports movie often. It's like one or two quotes that stick with you forever. And yeah, and those are the top three. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, we love those films. We did a whole behind the scenes sports movie segment with Jerry Maguire and Moneyball like together. We kind of cross analyzed the two because I think the world of the agents and the business uh, behind the scenes stuff is in ways more fascinating than like on the field, at least in the way it translates into film. Um, and it's just a personal preference, but all, all great picks. I also love that you brought up Cameron Crowe's music touches. He definitely kind of was one of those seminal filmmakers in the 90s to use needle drops in a way that felt very personal and auteurist in the sense that like you kind of felt a Cameron Crowe film as a Cameron Crowe film because of the music choices he did. And you have some other movies like Garden State, let's say, where Zach Braff, I feel like had like one of the all time great soundtracks just for the, the time being, right? Like where they tap into like the alternative indie songs that really hit those sweet spots. I was gonna say even like not necessarily indie cinema, but like horror cinema too. Not only like sports, but like House on Haunted Hill, right? The remake has one of the best like new metal soundtracks of all time. It's a big part of it. Like, you know, Sweet Dreams of Marilyn Manson was such a big song. It's a big part of the creepiness of that, those particular scenes where it shows up in. And I was even thinking films like Underworld, some of these other ones that have pretty big singles and behind the scenes, like soundtracks for like the scene and stuff like that, that work with them. One we haven't covered yet, but I've talked about several times is Rollerball is another one that has like these kind of like now, like, I guess you might say like cheesy needle drops or they were so of the time and the music and it works really well with this over the top, like monster energy drink commercial is that is Rollerball, but that's kind of what makes it so good. And what uh, makes it kind of like, I think a, an underrated movie. Definitely. And Matt, you had a great top three. I was a bit surprised though that you didn't bring in any actual Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh movies. And 
I'm just curious, like we got to talk a little bit about to get us into your your native territory, uh, a few of the greats that we've already covered and that we haven't covered. Um, but if I'm not wrong, isn't Slapshot in Pittsburgh? Or is it Johnstown? It's Johnstown, right right outside, okay. yeah. Okay. But, but close enough, close enough, yeah. It's basically like a hour and a half away from Pittsburgh, so it's considered Pittsburgh-ish. And, the, and that's crazy. There's a connection between the gambling movies we'll talk about, but Slapshot was directed by George Roy Hill, uh, The Sting, and Butch Cassidy fame, so that's kind of a wild touch there. But yes, Slapshot is important. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, and I, and I need to. I know Martin Scorsese recently was quoted saying he's a huge fan of it uh, randomly in some some interview. But I think Sudden Death, which we we touched on before the recording started, is kind of like the ultimate diehard in a X you know location uh, movie. The one of the best diehard ripoffs. And the craziest part is that it's in the middle of like Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final, the Peng- Penguins versus the Blackhawks, and you have everything you need, which is. Peter Himes as the director, he was sort of an awesome genre guy, whether it's the 80s or 70s. And this had Powers Booth as the villain. So you, you kind of had all the all the pieces to make a great Pittsburgh movie. And it's crazy, despite the fact that that movie takes place at night and it's indoors, there's some incredible, like really cinematic shots of Pittsburgh, which is such a hilly and beautiful sort of a landscape. And there's these like three, five second clips early on in the film of Jean-Claude with the city in the background. And it's like sunset. And I'm like, no director has ever captured Pittsburgh this beautifully. And this is just sort of a throwaway shot from an action movie. So it's little, little moments like that that you appreciate. And uh, Striking Distance, not really a sports movie, but another good like Pittsburgh R-rated uh, thriller um, from that era. I've never even seen Striking Distance. Yeah, Who's in yeah, that? It's, uh, it's Bruce Willis. And Sarah Jessica Parker and Tom Sizemore. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna yeah, list. yeah. I think the director of that is actually from Pittsburgh, so they like use a lot of the street names, and it's kind of f- funny oh, to to watch that in retrospect. But also a cool city because or a cool movie because uh, Willis plays a Marine cop, which you never see in film or very rarely. Mm-hmm. Like that's not a that's not a niche um, subgroup uh, of uh, policing that you see on screen. And him and Sarah Jessica have pretty good chemistry, so it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's added to my list. Every time we do a pod, there's like four films that get added to my <laughs> never never ending list. But no, I, I'm really happy also you brought up George Roy Hill, right? The director, because that can move us into a little bit of our talk of the day of the topic, right? Of poker movies. Um, And today for our audience, as you'll probably see in the liner notes, we're going to cover both poker movies in general to set the series up, as I mentioned, and we're going to really focus at the end on rounders. Um, But first, I just kind of want to get into this world, right? Because it's such a rich subgenre. I would call it a subgenre personally. Some people might call it a, a genre itself, right? Because mm-hmm. there's films that are just poker movies. There's films that are heist movies, but have a poker element. There's a lot of noir movies, I feel like, that have the poker you know, elements underneath the noir elements. There's the rich history of poker scenes in, in Westerns, right? Mm-hmm. And as I was starting to deep dive, I was starting to realize how many types of genres have used poker in their mm-hmm. films, right? And mm-hmm. I think your article does a pretty cool job of of seeing that as well, right? Because you you kind of start in that Poker Face article with The Card Counter, which is a kind of an intriguing film to me in the sense that, yes, poker is kind of the conduit for the story or or the main vehicle for the story. The story isn't so much about poker. I mean, it's almost, almost no more than a character trait that opens up this other world. That movie shows that like we have two sides of poker, as you already noted, like the underground side, right? I've seen recently a documentary called Grinders, for example. It shows like these crappy little 
poker parlors in Toronto that are run out of like dumpy business complexes. And then you have like the granddaddy of them all, Las Vegas, right? And the biggest stages, right? The World Series of Poker, blah, blah, blah. So you get that, right? You get the you get the flamboyant, gaudy side of poker, right? And then you just get the sort of like tumble down ruffian side, which is dudes smoking cigars in a dingy den. And so, yeah, it's just such a rich genre. It's a, it's a very manly movie genre. I feel like it doesn't have to be right there. We can get into it. There are some good films focused around female characters as well. But I would say it does predominantly lean towards male-focused stories. And it is an interesting like genre in the sense of like it really highlights a sense of camaraderie and a sense of pariah culture, right? I feel like most poker players in some ways have an edge and an alienation towards the greater social mores and norms of society at large. I feel like there's something about a poker player that's always trying to beat the system. And that's such an inherently rich subtext for any any topic. So I already kind of went all over the place. Um, and to just try to ground this, Matt, um, and work us through your article, what did you take away when you did your deep dive through poker movies? And what are some of the motifs, conceits, and themes that really stood out to you? Yeah, I think you touched on some some great points there where it is, to your last point, it is sort of a battle against the odds, the house, so to speak, and also against like the your inner world, your inner circle, whether it's a girlfriend, a lover, or your friends. There, there's a lot of that sort of contradiction and uh, and fighting going on and mental and physical warfare through throughout a lot of these pictures. But in in looking back at the history of some of the big poker movies or some of the big gambling films, there's definitely a transition away from seven card stud poker or craps or these like random games of chance. And as you saw in the 90s, I think Rounders really started the the movement to focus on Texas Hold'em specifically, and and maybe even 10 years before that with House of Games, the Mammoth movie, where it, it was moving into a more even, even subgenre within gambling, which is kind of crazy to think about. But after Rounders came out, there were a lot of bad ripoffs that tried to emulate it, whether it was like Lucky You, the Eric Bana, Drew Barrymore rom-com, or I think he like plays his dad heads up at the final table played by Robert Duvall, but the 21, the movie based on bringing down the house mm-hmm. uh, was also kind of what you said about com- camaraderie. Uh, that was one of the rare examples of a, um, a total group effort, I guess, because it was a blackjack based. But in, in doing the research, I, I think there were a lot of films that they dealt with heists, maybe heists, were, the, the plot of heisting uh, was a bigger storyline in a lot of the earlier stories and like the sting for example i kind of see why tarantino is such a big george roy hill fan because uh the film is split up into chapters and you have this sort of giddy uppity music which which i didn't expect going in and then you have a you have a villain in robert shaw who almost looks identical to paul newman they both rock the stash and the slick back hair and those like pier- piercing blue eyes for both of them that, that could that kill you in, in in one look i think the earlier films they also dealt a lot with sort of the setting they were in, whether it was Cincinnati Kid and Steve McQueen being in New Orleans. It opens up kind of oddly where it's a uh, all black funeral on kind of a rainy day. And Steve McQueen's character plays this game w- w- with a little kid where they toss a dime to see how far it goes. It just felt out of sorts for the rest of the yeah. film. And I think that that film is like highly flawed compared to some of the other ones on this list there's a lot a lot of odd stuff like uh, f- extramarital affairs happening but then they take the, the girl still goes back to him played by tuesday weld i think so th- there's a lot of strange 
1950s-esque happenings yeah. going on. I actually want to pause you right there, not to interrupt, but to get into that one a little more, right? The Cincinnati Kid, uh, directed by Norman Jewison, who's also the director of the original Rollerball, um, which I think is uh, perhaps a masterpiece. It's it's on the verge or on the teeters on the precipice of me being able to call it that. I really love Rollerball. <laughs> but I recently watched The Cincinnati Kid, and it was very odd. And I love that you bring up the intro in New Orleans, because the intro I thought was amazing. I was like, oh, this scene, this setting, right? The music, the, the graininess, the beautiful cinematography from um, whatever they were shooting on in the, in 65. Hmm. But it quickly devolves into a very 1965 film in a very melodramatic way. The gender norms are just so radically different that they are alienating for the modern viewer they have that kid right who's the story arc kind of the full circle right because in the beginning he plays i think it's like quarters like some sort of a weird gambling game and he like wins the kid's money who's a poor like shoe shiner and takes it and then it's just like are we supposed to like steve mcqueen at the beginning like how is this supposed right. to make him at all redemptive or is this like a great the greatest opening to show like a tough I guess anti-hero in a way, just like a guy we kind of don't like. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, very curious movie, right? And I also loved your article though, because you really do track, which might be hard, like live to get in such nitty-gritty details if we're not like expert poker players. But you really do track like the different styles of poker throughout the ages and how it evolves, how some films take the odds to preposterous levels, right? I think it, uh, in Cincinnati Kid, you break down one of the scenes and say like, this was like a 2% chance or 2.6% chance of this probability of like a full house with all community cards on the board hitting. And also getting a straight flush would turn that to like a 0.02% chance, right? But like, of course, Hollywood, we're going to do it. <laughs> of course, right? But that that is interesting element too, right? How they do stretch statistical roles time and time again in all these movies, right? Because you always want to have a great hand versus a great hand. And I believe you coined the term. I don't think you coined it maybe, but you there's a term for this, right? And um, do you know the term of like the great hand versus the great hand trope? Maybe a bad beat of some some sorts, right? Uh, right? Like when a, when a great hand beats another hand, it's a, it's a bad beat. And actually yesterday in, in Pittsburgh at the casino, the largest bad beat jackpot in casino history was awarded it was like a royal flush versus four of a kind in a hand and uh the winner got almost half a million or, or probably more i think and uh people at the table even even got a piece of the action so that's fitting that we're analyzing poker the, <laughs> the day after a hand very similar to like casino royale and the cincinnati kid where you know it, it's it's made like you said it's made for pure hollywood effect and to heighten like the moment of insanity and sometimes against any odds whatsoever or any reality yeah they definitely stretch what a poker player might believe right they definitely take credibility out of the picture for dramatics which of course Mm -hmm. uh it's filmmaking right it's it's not reality it's heightened reality and you know you want to see high stakes games you always want to see people put it all in i think also one thing to note right is we have texas hold'em and we have no stakes Texas Hold'em, right? The differences between that uh, we'll get into because Rounders breaks that down very well, right? It's almost Mm -hmm. the whole point of that movie. And it's used as a metaphor for life, right? A life with rules and limits, right? A life with measured systems that keep you in order and working safely towards a goal or a life willing to wager to radical ends to, to make a big break, right? To leap out of your socioeconomic status or your stagnation, right? Or your lull, to jump classes. That itself becomes um, another form of a synthesis, right? There's such harmonious beauty in the way that a poker match resembles life 
on, on a metaphorical level that it's like almost one of the easiest things to, to write a screenplay for that can be quite witty and savvy in ways. It's hard to watch. I feel like a, a poker movie. If you put any effort into it <laughs> personally, Jordan, to bring you in, what's some of your um, relationships and memories and histories with some poker movies? Yeah. So like right off the bat with poker movies, I think of like Maverick randomly with um mel gibson which i know is not like a super popular poker movie but just one of those mel gibson movies i saw as a kid on hbo and was like kind of just like enthralled from beginning to end it covers like you said it has the weird western vibes and that idealism of like you just said transcending class it has the underbelly of whoever is on the line trying to kill him as i recall right and it has like the damsel in distress kind of narrative right everything you need also kind of like a western was wrapped up in that too but as you kind of explore all through the game of his knowledge of poker and just like in rounders like you using poker as a metaphor for in this case like traversing like manifest destiny right it's all about like westward expansions kind of happening in the background of this movie too for me it stands out because of that it hit an interesting note of all the kind of historical stuff i'm into like regarding california and you know westward expansion and then just as you said the what i think the anecdotal comedy of western is what happens in the saloon right it's always a poker game doors open up a shootout right a lot of that as i recall happens in there it's comedic it's a great example i haven't seen it in years but it's one of those mel gibson roles i always kind of stuck with me in the back of my head. I know a lot of people go to like Braveheart and a great movie. I love that one. But it's just one of those Mel Gibson comedy roles that goes under a lot of the radar. So I always think of that as my early exposure to like poker. Just to give context, I'm not really a big card player, actually. Don't really play a lot of card games. Uh, but I used to have a friend, one of my best friends, uh, nicknamed Coach Andrew, who's a huge card enthusiast. And, you know, when we'd go to the casinos, he's the one who want to play the card games. And I'm a big comic book nerd. So one of the things he'd have to listen to me talk about is comic books. And he'd go into poker and he'd quote a lot of the quotes that we're going to get into in Rounders. So that's kind of another in I have is I was kind of just absorbed a lot of like the philosophy of poker as like kind of like a spectator, not really in it. I, whenever there's poker games going on, I usually kind of just watch. I used to take people to poker games going on, going into like our underground reference, right? Like local poker games I never really played in, um, but I knew where to find them. And if I had friends who, you know, played poker, that would be, you know, they're in. And then just another random connection, like when I went to a, a university in Northridge, my first roommate was actually a professional poker player. I and mean, he should make his money playing poker games. And he eventually moved to Vegas and did it on the professional route. And I just remember the first time I moved in there, he was hosting one of these games. And it was just like a crazy experience. I was just like, just moved down from like slow, had just unpacked all my stuff. And like this dude hosted just like, I'm talking like Tony Soprano style. The up upstairs where we had like this kind of like landing, it was a pretty big house. We had like eight guys running it out. Had like, you know, six tables going on, bunch of big hands, you know, tons of cigar smoke, strippers bringing people beers and stuff like that. It was wild. It was like my first night in this house. And, and that's, that was his like, end. that was his, his, that's how he made a living. Right. And I was, that was my first actual exposure to like, I'm like, oh, people like play poker professionally. And like, you know, that's, that's what they do. It's not just a rounders thing. And that's kind of, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm living like uh, what Matt Damon was aspiring, was aspiring for. So that's like my personal connection to poker. Like I said, not really a big poker player, but I do know like people who that is their lifestyle. So that that's where when we get to rounders, I kind of have a little bit of a kind of personal connection, seeing it from the, like the spectator view. Awesome. Yeah. And Matt, do you have any like personal history with poker, the game? Do you uh, have some memories playing it? Any big hands you've lost? Any big tournaments you won? Do you like to play with friends? So forth? Yeah. I mean, kind of echoing the, the stories that Jordan just said, I, I also used to play like semi-professionally uh, online and I'd be lying if, if I said rounders wasn't the precursor to that obsession. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I was the kid in high school 
going around wanting to play games, wanting to play Texas Hold'em. I, I learned it in Boston. My friend taught me one summer in the mid 2000s. And I was just going around. I didn't care how much money we were playing. I just wanted to play. There's mm. something about the aesthetic. And uh, on TV, they would always show because the, the Hulk card cam was revealed. And that was a big sort of revelation in the game, the, the way the game was shown and, and broadcast. It changed, I think, people's interest in the film and su suddenly started, kind of catapulted the obsession and the poker boom, so call it. Mm -hmm. um, but I was playing in house games in high school, which were, were also, like Jordan alluded to, and uh, not not as um, grandiose yet because uh, we were younger, but uh, there was definitely people who were, were getting good just based off watching on TV, on Travel Channel and ESPN. But little did I know, ESPN would normally only show the all-in hands, which is a terrible way to learn how to play because, you know, you, you just you don't see the the, the minutiae and the sort of every other hand that happened during the night. And then in college, the, the day Obama won the election the first night, I, I bought in for 34 bucks and won like nine grand six hours later. Oh, yeah. And I suddenly had a bankroll to play poker. I felt like Mike McDermott matt damon's character in rounders um and i remember walking to school the next day and thinking like this is the proudest moment of my life because uh, up until then i was like I, I never you know had something i was this proud of and I, and I was like cool all those you know four years of literally being obsessed with poker watching it and watching every episode i could find on any tv show reading about it it finally came to fruition that night um and then eventually i got staked by uh, a few guys and i would give them a percentage of the winnings and play tournaments and then i just burned out like a year later i'm like what what am i doing but no that was a big a big period of my life for for a while and, and my friends were into it it was hard not to be part of it and i think even freshman year of college instead of going out friday saturday nights we had a home game on a pool table and it was low stakes but it was the most competitive low stakes game ever all these guys really cared and the quality of play got better as the year went on and, th and there were always so many characters and that was the best part you speak mm -hmm. to the camaraderie i think that was another attractive reason why you played it was a reason to socialize with your friends and hang out and just shoot the shit and uh sit on a you know a felt table which was really comfy and uh th those little things it was more exciting than i don't know going out and drinking at least to us at that point <laughs> uh, yeah uh, th that that's that's my personal end and, and rounders and espn i think we're the one to punch that kickstarted that Love it. I love it. I love to hear all of that. So you definitely have a foot in the game, right? You have some skin in the game. You have you have some yep. some knowledge of this world on the inside as well. I only have it, I think, peripherally. My brother's a big poker player and he's three years older than me. So I grew up playing like $10, you know, all night games, um, you know, when we were teenagers, then he kept making it more and more money and he's really good and I would never, ever win. So I kind of <laughs> would end up just like hanging out on the side, watching movies as him and his buddies played or like, you know, just hanging out and chatting because I was always intimidated. And every time I go hang out with him, right, he lives in Vegas. He definitely tries to talk me into going into like a 300 or $400 poker tournament. And yeah, that's not so much to poker players. But for me, I know I'm going to lose. So I'm like always resistant. I was like, nah, I'm good. But it is fun. And he definitely takes the, the, the approach of like, this is a hobby. You know, he has a steady job. And he's actually won a few tournaments where he, you know, he's got like 10, 20K from these wow. tournaments. So he has a few big wins under his belt. He's by no means an amateur even, an amateur professional, I mean, when I'm saying that. He's like a complete amateur. I'm just an enthusiast. Yes, his love for it kind of is infectious. My whole family really loves Vegas ever since I was a little kid. You know, we lived in L.A., our first vacation would be Vegas, pretty much. Uh, my grandma loved it. Every Christmas, we play bingo as a family and get prizes. Um, so we have a very like recreational gambling family. Um, and I feel like, oddly enough, 
everyone's pretty healthy about it. Mm-hmm. We could lose a few hundred, like, you know, the adults in my family, but they always take like a positive mindset. It's a hobby. It's fun. It's a, it's a place to be social, mm-hmm. which was interesting too. Cause I was reading some hot takes on this of like saying what a, not only like a world of degenerates, but what a like loveless world where like either you're happy because you stole people's money or you're you're in misery. But I think there are a lot of people who have a very healthy relationship and just love the ambiance of poker. They love the like Rat Pack era. They love the glitz and glamour of Vegas. And it's just something they love to do. Like oddly enough, I always think of it's not poker, but Bukowski and horse racing, right? Like I don't think he ever won big. I love Bukowski as a teenager. And there's a romanticism to going to the horse race tracks. There was a community there. It was like the blue collar space to lose your money at and as we'll see in like uh, some of these films we cover on later and some of the films I'm sure you've watched, Matt, right? Like Mississippi Grind or California Split, right? There's often great scenes in poker movies at the horse tracks, right? It's a definite motif, I would say, right? They love to remind us that like poker players, when they're not playing poker, are going to be gambling on something and it's likely going to be horses, sometimes dogs even I've seen in a few movies recently. That's another great part about poker movies is that they end up having multiple domains of gambling. And they're all exciting in very different ways. Um, Personally, I would say if there's anything I do most in the gambling sense, it's sports gambling, but I'm very different. I'm very strategic in a way that's too technical, too pedantic to spell out, but I like play the the promo systems and, and work things like in, in crazy ways. Like today, I bet against myself on this sort of guarantee that if a team was up by 10 points and lost, I would still win that bet. And I bet the other side and then I won both because the team was up by 10 and lost. So it's like a huge win. The only bet there is I lose the tax money in the bets, which is a 10% cut that the, that the bookies take. So like I have fun with that, right? But I'm very, very risk averse. Um, recently, I watched the movie called Don't make me go. It was a little father-daughter rom-com road trip American movie featuring John Cho and Mia Isaac. It's cute. It's on Prime. Don't highly recommend it. I I enjoyed it um, for what it was. But they had a few gambling scenes and there was a big thematic undercurrent about taking risks right in life and about being safe and not taking risks. And so they have a stop, not in Vegas actually, it's rare. It was in New Mexico, like a reservation casino, which I love. And they're playing roulette and his daughter, John Cho's daughter in the film, talks him into like throwing 30 to $50 down on roulette. Um, Cause she's more of the risk taker. He's more of the risk averse archetype and they lose the first hand, right? It's like $15. And he says, we could have seen two movies with that. That's exactly my line of thought when I, when I play poker, which is if you have that thought process, you're done. You cannot <laughs> think like that. You can't think practical or utilitarian like that or where this money could go here. So that's why just on a personal level to just break the ice, I am definitely never going to be a professional poker player because I will never not have that line of thought. My wife and I were once in Macau. Uh, we lost like 150 one day and all we did was talk about like all the ways we could have spent it on that trip <laughs> <laughs> over dinner, right? And just like, <laughs> it was so petty and frugal, but it's just the way my mind works. So uh-huh. hell no, it's not for me, but I love it and it makes me respect it even more. But let's get back to the topic. There's so many good films I brought up. I want to bring up two specifically again for Max. I know you love these ones and I love them too. Um, and they're a different type of poker movie. I would call them like the shaggy dog bromance poker movie, right? <laughs> that <laughs> is... a crazy image in my head when you said that. <laughs> that needs to be like a production company logo or name. <laughs> Yeah, the hangout film, though, right? And I want to hear your thoughts on uh, Mississippi Grind and California Split. Well, yeah, those two, I mean, are great comparisons because Mississippi Grind in many ways feels like a, almost a direct ripoff 
uh, through and through of California Split. And for this generation, many haven't seen California Split, so they, they, they'd never know that that was, in fact, the, the baseline for it. But California Split, just to start off, you'll find a lot of great directors working behind in this genre. And, and I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think this is sort of like the foremost one, um, in addition to his uh, disciple, which is PTA. We can get into Hard Eight later. But California Split has Robert Altman written all over it. And it's that improvised, free-flowing tone and, and mood setting that only he can create. I don't know how he does it, but it feels like his characters are sort of floating. There's a naturalism to it. You feel like they're shooting in these actual places and there's these characters. It's not a setup. It's not, there aren't actors involved. Um, almost feels like a pseudo documentary or something. And you can't think of two more complimentary and better characters kind of as a tag team than George Siegel and uh, Elliot Gould's character, uh, Charlie and, and Bill, respectively. These are guys who are gamblers through and through, and, and they'll hustle on anything. You, you talked about the horse racing scene uh, early on in the movie. Uh, they'll play blackjack, craps, they'll sports bet on the side. It's the other scenes, right? I think there's a scene later on in the movie where they're they're driving across country and then kind of going from town to town and, and they set up shop at uh, Elliot Gould's kind of uh, girlfriend or, or um, someone who he has affairs with here and there. And uh, they just stay at the house and sort of like hang out. And that randomness kind of echoes the randomness of the games they're playing in a way and the, uh, the ups and downs. And I like that both California Split and uh, Heart 8 use a scene where a character like wins a big hand but he acts like he lost it. So it's like a, it's a reverse psychology a little bit. And it's towards the end. I'm, I'm thinking of in Heart Eight, where Philip Seymour Hoffman, who has a small role, but he's incredible, of course. He just says like, fuck, uh, you know, under his tone as he's playing craps against Phil Baker Hall. And you're like, oh, cool. You know, um, the, the old guy got it. But then you, you realize seconds later, no, it's the opposite. And the same thing happens towards the end of California Split, where, where George Siegel wins a big bet. But it's a little different for him because... You know, he's not about winning that much. Like, like, it's not about the winning or losing. It's about the thrill of the event, the moment, um, which is something that Ben Mendelsohn in Mississippi Grind echoes and and kind of emulates so well. I mean, Mendelssohn's terrific. And it even makes, I, I think, Ryan Reynolds pretty likable as kind of uh, cringy as a lot of his big budget movies have been the last 10, 15 years. He's made out into a real character here, and it's shaped really nicely. It's it's also cool to see that movie. They're kind of going down the, what would you call it, sort of the, the Missouri, the, the back roads are down the Mississippi, right? They're kind of uh, the Midwest and the South and, and hitting up these small towns. And it is a callback to an earlier era where gambling in, in many ways, in many respects, came from. It's an updated, you know, California split. It's a, it's a, it's a terrific and effective two-hander. Um, not as good, I think, as California split. And I, I think the big difference is uh, having Robert Altman um, as, as the backbone. It, it just sets sets him apart. Yeah, definitely. It's much more sleek, right, and accessible for modern audiences, but it's not groundbreaking as California Split is, and it doesn't have the ambiance uh, that that movie creates. That movie was such a mood for me at a certain period of my life. Uh, you know, it makes such a one-two punch with the long goodbye, right, with Elliot Gould mm -hmm. as well. But I just love the overlapping dialogue and the naturalism in that movie. In ways, sometimes it feels not staged, but there are a few moments with, I think, like in the house with the women that are kind of going for almost a screwball element. Somehow he he, he makes it feel like a hangout movie, like a, an OG hangout movie. And it never leaves. And I love the way that he uses sort of like recklessness 
as his approach to these characters. I think that like for them, gambling is a way of not giving a fuck to just be candid. And the power of that, it's a very, I think, in an odd way, beatnik influence movie. I, I think of the beatniks every time I watch it. I think of, you know, Jack Kerouac, the spirit of the, of that scene. I think of like Ginsburg's Howl poem, where he just talks about like, you know, just being completely vulnerable and at the whim of like life. And I, I just kind of, I get that vibe from that type of movie. Whereas Mississippi Grind, right, with Ben Mendelsohn gets a little bit more into addiction, the cyclical nature of addiction. But it is such a great film as well. I really do like Mississippi Grind. Even though it's a bit derivative of California Split, it, it does its own thing. It's, it's a nice update. And it's, as you noted, Brian Reynolds' like standout performance probably in the past two decades. It's a breath of fresh air for people who are sick, sick of his shtick. And Ben Mendelsohn is always great to me. He plays very tortured, a little disturbed figures that are kind of on the fringe hmm. uh, in ways uh, that are struggling with some sort of turmoil inwardly that doesn't get fully expressed ever in films. I love that about a lot of his roles is that he's at once often somewhat verbose, but also laconic. Like you never quite know what's really going on. I feel like inside of him, there's something else. There's something more. That's a great, great feature of an actor. Um, when you bring up Hard Eight too, I some reason I always think of Hard Eight, which is you know one of P.T. Anderson's. No, I can't say that. I love his movies. It's actually, I it's sacrilege for some, but it's very low on my P.T.A. list. But it, it's it's definitely important, right? Because it is so early on, and it's still a great film. But for me, I just he he has one of the most impossible canons to rank. But it is <laughs> it is a really interesting film um, about relationships as well, about father son relationships. So it's doing all these other things. But yes, gambling also is featured very heavily. But I always think of oddly enough, the cooler as well. Maybe it's because William H. Macy and PTA have such connections, right? But I love the cooler. The little 2003 film um, is one of my faves. And I feel like for some reason, it has like not exactly the same energy because they are quite different in ways, but it has a very similar energy for some reason to Hard Eight for me. Um, and that's a movie where William H. Macy is this guy who like never can take a break. Like he's the most unlucky person in the in the world. It's almost silly and inane how unlucky he is. And he kind of like casually stumbles into this relationship with a, with a woman and she's his good luck charm. And then he can't lose. It's a silly parable, but I don't know. I think it hits all of the beats. And I just love all the different ways Vegas is depicted. It's depicted in such drastically different ways in so many movies. There's scenes of a film. I don't want to know if you've seen it yet, and I have not seen it, but it looks absolutely riveting to me. It's called Queen of Diamonds by Nina Menkes. And she shows Vegas in a very drab, sterile, inhuman light. But we could talk about some others. Leaving Las Vegas, right? It's almost just a movie about alcoholism, right? But Vegas can be very dark. For obvious reasons in a lot of uh, these movies. But it can also yeah. be super light and lighthearted, like Vegas Vacation. Perhaps the greatest Vegas movie that we haven't mentioned yet. Or gambling movie, right? It's all it's a great gambling parable, right? Like, what's the lesson? Like, you have your family at, at the end, right? It's such a heartwarming tale of losing your money and luck and getting the four cars at the end. But I, I love Vegas Vacation. I'm totally harping it, but it's one of my favorite background comedies. Ranking the National Lampoon movies, it, it might be my number two. Uh, I know a lot of people put it there towards the end, but I, I love Vegas Vacation. I do too. I saw it in a double feature, which is weird. It won't make sense because they weren't out the same year, of course. But it was with oh. Weekend at Bernie's. And it was at this <laughs> casino bowling alley hotel in Death Valley. And we were going between Vegas and the Sierra Nevadas. My family stopped and we watched Vegas Vacation and Weekend at Bernie's. And both movies wow. were just amazing. And I will never forget like the final scene, right? They win big in Vegas. and They're all driving home with their like convertibles and switching the yep. lanes. I just love that dumb movie too i love the scene where the hillbilly brother what's his name 
Um, did anyone know on the top of their uh, head? Randy Quaid, right? Plays Randy him? Quaid's character is like boiling the egg on the rock. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cousin Eddie. Cousin yeah, Eddie, thank I, you. Yeah. yeah, great film. To Amazing. go to the go to the comedy realm, right? There's a bunch actually. There's the House with Will Ferrell, which was too late in the Will Ferrell shtick era. It kind of felt contrite by that period in his career. Mm-hmm. I had fun with it. I saw the Dollar Theater, it was a perfect Dollar Theater movie. Recently, there was an amazing article on Day Shift. I brought that up in our last episode, that film, right? The the silly Jimmy Fox movie. Uh, Matt Zeller cites on um, Roger Ebert's site, right? You know, the community of writers now. He likened that movie to a great dollar theater movie. <laughs> and the, I think for me, one of the greatest dollar theater movies in my life was The House. And what he brought up was dollar theaters. You get the cheap seats. You get a packed house. Mm-hmm. You get a you get a different demographic, which he doesn't spell out, which he shouldn't spell out. But you get a different demographic, and that demographic is rowdy. They're <laughs> excited. They got their popcorn and their soda, and they're ready to like how. Mm-hmm. And there's there's just a vibe in those theaters for us. For us '90s early aughts kids, I feel like that was our grindhouse theaters, especially if we sure. were in the suburbs more, right? We didn't actually have anything hip, so it's sort of like a suburban kid. Yeah, the house is one of mine. Swingers, right? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. That has uh, like the most realistic depiction of what Paul's describing, holding on to your money and being scared to let it go with the infamous double down, right? On the on blackjack, right? I love it's the deadpan of it all. Like that that is me back then at that age. Like when you're 21, you first go to Vegas. Paul, I think went with me to Vegas for the first time I was 21, right? Because I've been there before. Like first time I went to Vegas, I was 19 for a brand new concert, right? So I kept trying to get the free drinks. They kept carding me, right? So the first time you get to go when you're 21, I'm like, oh, I gotta go in here, but you don't want to spend that much money, right? It's Swinger does it pretty well, right? There's a sexiness of like Vegas, kind of like we've talked about. And then there's like that, like actual, like economic reality, like this hundred dollars, I can actually go get some meals and, you know, X amount of drinks. And like that scene just encapsulates it so well with Vince Vaughn, even though he loses money, like saying, oh, you always double down. You always got to double down. Yeah. And the the scene where the dealer is trying to instruct him how to lay the money on the table, right? It's such so a relatable. It's so relatable. It's your first time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so rusty. Every time I go back, I'm a little nervous stepping into the table, right? And I yeah. like often overcompensate and try to be too confident and do like <laughs> some glaring mistakes. Um, See, I'm opposite now. Now I know they're actually really friendly. And they'll explain the rules to you. You just have to ask them. Right. That's their job. They'll explain and like kind of like tell you. Right. And like you said, that shows you the first time you're so intimidated as a as like a young dude, like to actually ask. You don't want to look stupid. Right. And you'll just go through the motions. Whereas now I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I look stupid. I want to know how to play this game. I'm standing up here and throwing my money at. Right. Which brings us to another great film, uh, which I could bring up for Matt and get your input. Uh, I always don't know how to pronounce the word. Is it croupier? Is it French? That's right. Okay. Okay. Great film. Right. What are your thoughts on croupier? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a game-changing film for Clive Owen. This is kind of like the Clive Owen arrival. Um, I think people started to take note of his uh, stature as a a leading man and and a really dynamic and amusing one at that. But Croupier is interesting because a lot of these films that we've talked about or we've mentioned, um, it's interesting that gambling and poker have been first features for many directors, right? The Cooler, Wayne Kramer, that was his directing debut. Hard Eight with PTA, House of Games with Mamet, Molly's Game with Aaron Sorkin. These are all their first movie, and there's something to that, right? Wow. With, Krup- with Krupier, it's a little bit of the reverse. It's an, it's an old man, it's a veteran coming to play a kid's game. That's director Mike Hodges, who made his uh, name known in the 70s with these uh, grungy, dark thrillers, kind of like the British Dirty Harry with Get Carter uh, and and Michael Caine and and another film called Pulp, which is great. But this film blends the neo-noir aspect with with poker and and, or rather casinos and and dealing because Clive Owen plays a croupier, a.k.a. a dealer and sort of the 
backstabbing that happens, the romance, but also the fact that this guy has another life. Also, he's an aspiring writer and, and a failed writer. Uh, and he's trying to make ends meet by just having a job at a casino and then getting involved in a scheme. And it is a really neat movie. It, it helps to have the UK, I think, as a setting. It's it's really well, again, orchestrated and shot and, and cast. There's, there's like a mysterious vibe, similar to, I think, Shallow Grave, which was filmed in, I think, Edinburgh nearby, the Danny Boyle film also kind of had that, the thing you kind of couldn't put your finger on, but you, you wanted to keep watching the film, this this mystery and intrigue. And, and, and yeah, and Croupier has uh, one of the most amazing like twists at the end. Uh, the, the finale is, is terrific. Uh, Owen's hair at one point is blonde, I think, in the first half of the film, right? He looked, yeah, he looks very mid-90s. <laughs> Yeah, very um, 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 train spotting. Um, the actor, help me out here. Ewan McGregor, I'm thinking, uh, okay. with the kind of huh. short blonde, right? But definite like 90s Brit uh, hipster. It, it, it's weird to use that phrase. That's the wrong phrase. But like, what was hipster at that time? I, I get the vibes from it. Mm -hmm. He, he kind of looks like he should be a member of like the Cure or something that like right. outlived the New Wave era. I love his role in that. He just oozes charm and, and style in it. It also has a really unique set of female characters uh jordan you brought this up earlier but i brought it up earlier a little bit you know the role of of women characters in in poker films mm. um you get the damsel in distress often you also get the what might sound kind of taboo to say but like the shrew the kind of like girlfriend wife yeah. shrew you know because you're you're messing with money right and they don't want the risk right and they're they're that they represent stability mm. which in some of these films because we get more of the male perspective becomes you know the antagonism yeah and so here we have a really weird movie too because you have almost a fallen soul i don't want to get too deep into it but clive owen's character is like a writer right he is a man of like mm -hmm. artistic integrity who kind of sells out and it's almost more of like picking up a bureaucratic job and the way he approaches his job he's very stolid he's very stoic he's very unemotional almost mechanical and robotic and he's almost the antithesis of the gambler right the gambler is vulnerable right they risk they dare some do, right? At least they're experiencing it, right? And he doesn't have the ups and downs. He doesn't have the swings. He doesn't have the undulations. He's just a worker who ends up like buying into the system. There's this really strong line in the middle where his girlfriend, who's now really upset with his life choices, says, you're an enigma, you are. And he responds, I'm not an enigma, just a contradiction. It's this really dark film also about like self-hate. Like he sells out, buys into the system temporarily. And I, I love the mysteriousness of why, because he does seem like someone who's playing a role that is very much an alter ego, very much not of his predominant way. And it's also a 1998 film, right? And you get the parallels between that and Rounders. Yeah, it's not like you described Rounders there for a second. If you just take out the names, Clive Owen, and like you said, just Matt Damon, or just the, the lead and his significant other. If you hear that conversation, like you said, it's pretty much the same plot. It's very different in ways too, but it's a really nice double feature or one, two film to juxtapose to one another for the same, you know, year, same plot development and elements, but also very different tones and directions they take with it. And, you know, I think that Croupier ends up more of a somewhat heist film, right? As a lot of these do rounders ends up more of a character study of a relationship towards risk. So that, that makes them quite different.
Mm-hmm. And another one of the great heist ones, right? There's a lot of great heist movies, right? There's Ocean's Eleven we can get into, right? There's also the whole other subgenre of the gangster films with poker scenes in them, right? Jordan and I were talking about these a little bit before we even got on live today about mm-hmm. killing them softly. I think one of the greatest Brad Pitt films and one of the better films in the last few decades that no one talks about and forgot very quickly by Andrew Dominic. Uh-huh. It, its catalyst is that like some dumb mobsters they rob a mobster card game, right? Yeah. And Brad that's, Pitt has- Sorry, I tell because that's such a mafia trope. Like fans of Sopranos, Goodfellas, if I remember right, right? The way to show the boss, like you got the balls, right? You take the money from the person above you. And that's a reoccurring theme in like Sopranos is like, that's how Tony got his street cred is he robbed his, I think his uncle's game, if I remember right, but that's what like the Many Saints in New York, if I remember, is about. But again, that's directly kind of like lifted from like a reference is like, you know, homage to like Goodfellas. And like you said, that like rising through the ranks, again, goes back to the Western in many ways, like the nefariousness of the card game and like going into, you know, the sketchy drinking area, right? Because the card game, like using Sopranos as a reference, right? It's just like reoccurring device for Tony. It's also the way he hooks people, like, uh, or get them, one of the ways he gets like a, a character to, you know, get him under his thumb is he keeps sporting him money. He actually plays, if I remember right, with... um wasn't Scorsese, but someone in, in Hollywood is at, the, is at the game and Tony shows up and basically the guy was playing on his bankroll and Tony's like trying to cut him off. It gets a little sketchy and the Hollywood guy's like, okay, I'm going to go. It's a smack on the game, right? It's that carrying over motif, the respect of the game, the power of it all, right? The way it works within, within the crime realm. It's just so interesting because it goes into so many levels and it's just one of those like reoccurring themes. I think you watch it, like you said, like just mafia movies or gangster movies. It's just one of those things you kind of always catch on and you know something cool is going to happen with it, with that kind of trope. Definitely. And I want to bring Matt once again, because you know a lot about some of these poker adjacent gangster movies or heist movies, right? We have The Sting, 1973, which we mentioned, but maybe you could dive a little more deeply into that. And, you know, we also have House of Games, which you've talked about. But I want to hear your takes on those two with David Mamet and how that is, I think, very much from what I hear. And I have not seen that one yet. And I'm really intrigued by that one, a heist film. So, yeah, what do you think about this sort of marriage of genres, the heist and poker movie? Yeah, so so it is an interesting contrast, right? The, you have the croupier and the gambler, the James Conn movie, where these guys have another job, they have another profession, and they're very existentialist. They're in intellectuals. They're you know English professors or writers trying to battle the game and sort of fight their addictions and and, and their uh, proclivities. And then you have these sort of heist movies that are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum where it's a team, it's a group, it's it's the last gang, it's the last great heist, the big score films, which tend to be more fun and, and more upbeat, kind of less dour, especially compared to The Gambler. The Sting is, is George Roy Hill, and it was a killer at the Oscars that year in 73. It won Best Picture, you know, r- really cleaned up. I think uh, he won Best Director also for that movie. It's a reuniting of Paul Newman and uh, Robert Redford. And in many ways, it is kind of a nice complement to Ocean's Eleven, where it's movie stars being movie stars and, and sort of shining on screen. You seeing all the, uh, I guess, beauty and, and looks in their faces and their eyes and their expressions, but also them outsmarting the opposition, right? Like the the hooded gangsters or, or the sort of evil types that circle the streets. And The Sting has a great performance from Charles Durning who uh, was sort of an actor De Palma used a lot in like Sisters uh, and The Fury. And he was one of those that guy actors from that era. And he plays like an evil lieutenant in a small role. But I totally didn't see the, the end of the, the sting coming. That, I, that was a nice twice. twist again. And that's the other thing about these movies and the genre is that these films, 
deal with trickery and games where you need to outsmart your opponents. But then the movies and the stories themselves do that to the audience as well. That They kind of are three or four steps ahead of us. And when watching The Sting, it, it took me a while to kind of figure out what the heck was going on in that movie in the first 20, 30 minutes. But I was sort of uh, engrossed uh, regardless. I loved the, the music, the, the piano playing, the way the chapters are split up. Robert Shaw, this is before Robert Shaw goes on a killer run with taking a Pelham 123 in 74, and then he does Jaws in 75. This, I think, kind of uh, confirms him as one of the go-to villains of the 70s. But yeah, th- there are so many good scenes, wh- whether they're on the train or even that whole room and place that they create in that building, the the fake horse betting track that they create in The Sting, uh, which in many ways, it- it's fitting that you you talk about House of Games. I think that's what a lot of Mammoth's films throughout his career have been uh, really into, this sort of like the facade of what's happening, but it's really not, right? It's the sleight of hand. It's the, uh, you know, look, but you can't touch. And Mammoth's work has always been like three to four steps ahead of the audience. And when he's at his best, that's what the film is doing. And at House of Games, it's his debut and it's the arrival of a new way of speaking. It's a new language and it's really catchy. There's so many good lines and throughout all these films, really, you know, there is a thing with whether it's swingers, like you're so money and you don't even know it or rounders with Teddy KGB. There is like a vernacular and a quotability to all these movies and house of games does have one of the, I think smartest female characters and one that's kind of put to use more so than any other gambling-related film, and that's Lindsay Krauss, who Mamet eventually married, and with whom they have Zasha Mamet, who I think was on Girls. If anyone watched that show, Shoshana. But Lindsay Krauss is really good in this movie. She plays a psychologist who is kind of in over her head when she meets Joe Montagna, because uh, one of her patients owes money. And Joe Montagna, who a great Chicago actor, just like Mamet, who was from that area, kind of says, here, I'll I'll take you in as long as you kind of help me out during this poker game. Tell me about this guy's tells, you know, <laughs> and uh, Ricky Jay, who PTA uses in a lot of movies, um, he's kind of like wiggling his finger and, and Joe Montana lies about that. And, and the movie is just like one scheme and one con after another. And it's really brilliantly done. Uh, William H. Macy, of course, is in it. It's 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 ironic that William H. Macy was caught in the uh, SAT or the college application scandal, given his history with like Coen brothers and Mammoth movies that are the, the plot of those films <laughs> is, is all about the con and uh, and shysting, you, you know, your, your, your opponent. So I'm so glad you brought that up because I forgot he was even implicated in that because everyone focuses on like Aunt Becky or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's such a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a very personal relationship to that scandal and controversy. Um, I was a tutor, a freelance tutor in Orange County during that time. And one of my five employers was Rick Singer, the <laughs> ringleader of the whole thing. Uh, wow. I interviewed with Rick. While he was being wiretapped by the FBI, I was hired by Rick while he was being wiretapped. I worked for him for seven to eight months while he was being wiretapped. Every email was being looked by the FBI of mine. (laughs) Every conversation. The good news is that he had a legitimate business and I was on the legitimate side of the business, right? And that was a back deal half Uh that I didn't know about. And so, but he had to be wiretapped around the clock because he was trying to get out scotch-free, not scotch-free, but he was trying to like, you know, reduce his his sentence. I I went deep into it because of how close I was to it. Man, Mm -hmm. I was still working for him. He's still on his payroll, getting bi-weekly checks and wake up, turn on CNN, top story, right? Uh And I see my boss, the guy I don't know too well, but 
just right his face right there and just like freaked out i remember just going for like a three-hour run um <laughs> and just being like i'm straight i'm straight i'm straight because it doesn't even matter how like straight you are like the fact that it's that close to you start being like yeah. scared like i'm straight right i'm good i'm straight but yeah crazy I mean, story, I was right? like an fbi agent just tagging paul in the background that he doesn't even see while he's, while he's jogging oh i'm jogging don't um, watch this tutor yeah anyway that was a very funny story but yes sorry to take us away it's similar though right it's a world of backdoor dealing a lot of secrecy going on a lot of gimmickry going on a lot of cheating going on right um mm. uh, another one of my very formative materials or texts for poker you brought it up earlier matt uh, the film 21 or the book bringing down the house i read that it was one of the first like adult books i ever read i think i was like 12 or 13 loved it i loved the book it's about a group of mit students who learn how to count cards and um start you know doing this this huge ruse collective ruse mm-hmm you know, a bunch of signals and they start taking down the houses and then they get caught and then they get sent to the back rooms of Vegas, which is a whole nother trope. They get beat up by the bouncers and and so forth. When I started researching for this, I definitely want to see a few documentaries. There's one about a guy who is infamous for making disguises and he like still somehow finds his way into poker arenas. And it's almost like a jackass skit now. He's more famous for just playing because Uh he's so hated and so restricted around the world and he refuses to give up. And it's, I just saw the trailer and it was riveting. I want to watch that. Um, There's a ton of juicy stuff about the era of, uh, you know, online poker that existed for, you know, a good, I don't know, five to 10 years it was its heyday, right? I, I think there's some sedimentary forms that are still surviving today, but it wasn't what it was. It wasn't this like wild west kind of like Bitcoin space where like the people who were on the end and knew how to tweak the system were making millions. And the rise and fall of some of those big companies is fascinating to me, but I'm deviating a bit. I, you did bring up a really great point with House of Games that I haven't seen yet, but I've read already a, a few takes is that the jargon and vernacular, right? You have a great screenwriter, right? Because Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, The Untouchables. I mean, I love all his films. I love the dialogue. Wag the dog, even like whatever he writes, whatever he puts his finger on, you feel, right? He's like Tarantino in that way. It's like his pauses resonate. His turns of phrases resonate. I always wonder why doesn't Tarantino have more poker gambling teams? I'm, I'm sure he has a few. Does he have any? I don't know. Reservoir Dogs feels like a poker movie, even though it's not. Just the way they wear their suits and hang out at the diner uh-huh. makes it feel like that, right? Every time he's at a diner scene, it, it gives me the same vibe of being at a, at a poker table with your with your guys. Yeah. But I, yep. he rarely ever actually enters into that domain, um, which is odd for me. But definitely, it taps into that. All your talk about uh, the Sting, right? I, I started thinking about the Hustler, right? Those films get really. Uh, mixed up always in my head, <laughs> no matter what, for some reason, you know, they both start with the same article and they're both from the same era and they're both loosely in the same kind of malaise, right? Hmm. And that's another whole genre. I feel like it's very parallel to this, right? The billiards hall genre, pool hall, pool hall junkies. Hmm. Uh, we can talk about the color of money, the color of money. But anyways, that's another great genre. And that one's more interesting too, because that one, it's not only like betting, but there's legitimate physical talent. Um, so very quickly, I want to also get into this idea of why is a poker movie a sports movie? And it could be not. I, I don't care how we we take this or where we go with this conversation. It's very organic. We're doing it on our podcast because we like to explore the boundaries of the genre. But I'm curious to hear like everyone's take. Is it, is it a sports genre? I'll start with you, Jordan, since we go over this more and we haven't touched on this specific yeah. genre first. Yeah, for me, because actually well, it goes really well with how I first came across Rounders, actually. This was at the height of like poker on ESPN, the online poker stuff, always on late night, something I'd kind of watch, right? 
And this is at a time when I just moved to San Luis Obispo. And so like, I didn't have like a whole lot of money. So I was like, there was no cable or anything like that. So going through like the roommate's DVDs, I came across rounders and like threw it on one night. And like, it went perfect with like what was going on at that time. You watched some late night poker. And then I watched this movie. I had no context about him. Like it just like lined up perfectly. Like you said, with that time of what was pretty trendy at that time. Um, And like my point being, that was on ESPN, right? It came on after I'd watched my sports center. After I flipped around the TV for some music videos, came back to watch some other highlights, right? And then there was ESPN. And then it would be on like NBC and stuff too, after MMA. So like my point being, I had like one channel to watch. I had like channel four. So whenever I'd come to like watch my sports, like I had to watch like a lot of like replays of stuff. That's kind of how I'd watch it then. And like I said, I had a roommate who's really into poker. You know, the way he talked about it, he talked about like a sport. The way he explained it and the insights and the trajectory is the way you talk about hockey right? The way you talk about like going one-on-one with the goalie. It's a lot about eye contact, right? It's not just about what you're doing with your hands and like where you're shooting. A lot of it's just like pulling the goalie and where, where do you think I'm going? Where are my eyes? Where's my body, right? Sometimes just where your body's at, you can beat them, right? So I always thought of it that way. I'm like, when he, when he talked to me about it, I was like, yeah, that is a hundred percent like the professional level of it, right? And the competitiveness of it sound just like any other sport, like the mental aspect of it, even though they're sitting at a table, it's just like bowling, like a good bowler, right? So my qualification was both that weird ESPN qualifier, right? It was there, it's on the brand of sports, right? But just from conversation, people are passionate about it. Uh, I could see why, like you said, to be into it, like you have to separate your money from the game. And if you could do that, you could play it and you could really play it, right? And it goes the same way the way some people look at certain sports, if you can separate like your health being on the line and actually going to do it, right? It's a different kind of rationale for the observer, kind of what I'm saying, like the audience member. So I kind of got that. I was like, there is a definite like risk in overcoming that. And it takes a certain like metal, like to actually do that. So I always had like a weird, like respect and just like not wanting to get calm by people who are really good at this. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely view it as like a sport. Like I, I just have like a respect for it. Great. Yeah. I mean, I also think that there is the facial element, right? Whether you are trying to be extroverted, right? And mm-hmm gregarious with your mu, with your countenance, or whether you're trying to be reticent, right? And shield your emotions, right? You're you're doing some sort of performative gesture. Your demeanor means something. Mm-hmm. And it means something in time, in a situation with others. But then you could say the same for a love story, right? With romance, right? There's a million affective ricochets going on, right? Mm-hmm. In the moment. You could then also try to argue that it's a sport, right? Because It's cognitive calculations rapidly going on in a confined space and time against an opponent, right? But then you can say, well, then is every board game a sport? And you get into these really (laughs) intriguing Uh semantic quagmires. But then you ask yourself, well, then why did ESPN pick it up? Is it just because it had a movement? It has an audience. Would they pick up Dungeons and Dragons if it ended up having the culture to support it? I kind of think so. I think so. Yeah. E-games. If it had the culture. Legends, right? Yeah. So I think it veers almost more towards a game, but a game that's not purely strategic as we will get into as well, right? A game where you can see that there is a level of talent that can allow it to be a professional tenureship as well. We see the grinders, that's an approach and expertise, right? It's a connoisseurship that allows you to transcend the probability aspects, right? There's still probability, right? But there's probability in everything as well, right? There's probability yeah. in baseball. So, so I kind of want to qualify one more thing. So going yeah. back to my example of Maverick, like it's super American, right? It goes with like football. It goes with basketball, right? And that's another thing that kind of qualifies it. There's a culture and a history there that is proud, just like racing, right? When we think of racing as like a sport, one of those big sports, I think it is. It, it kind of enters that conversation the same way those sports do, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a big 
proud tradition and like stars you can point to that you can't really do with board games right now we see video games now they're starting to do that right because it's been around long enough where you can point to like certain players and stuff from 95 on right on certain franchises they're like the greats of those right but you can see that's in its infancy still right um even looking at like mma like you're really looking at it, it's like a 30 year old sport you can point at the greats but this one's much older than those way older than like we said it goes to the west and like when we get to like the examples of like you'll know maybe better than me matt i'm not going to like butcher my the book that matt damon's character is always referencing right i forget that great poker player right there's these mm -hmm. prime knowledge that you just don't get with those other ones like we're kind of comparing to which i think actually qualifies it with more like that that worship of sport that we talk about with the audience that is essential to like claiming it as a sport i think that has a big part of it but like i said it's, it's fabricated into like the american history definitely and i want to hear matt's take first but i do want to put one more thing that i thought of as you were speaking as well is the element of speed is essential, right? And there's so many games, right? Like board games. I was thinking Monopoly can, can't be any more American, right? Or representative mm -hmm. of capitalism, but you could never be able to have that as like a sport. It takes too yeah. long. There's too much meandering. And everyone has their own interpretation of Monopoly. Yeah. And there's no essential drama or arc, right? There's definitely a narrative arc. You can make a po poker tournament entertaining. And that's one of the key mm -hmm. elements that make it a sport. But I want to let you now give your two cents, man. I'm curious to hear your take. I think the fact that there's a winner and a loser often in poker, I, I think that qualifies as for sports status. And, and there's a, a competitive fervor that could only be sort of uh, compared to, I think, a sport, the, the same kind of highs you get from winning or losing. And what helps, I think, Texas Hold'em is, to your point, and to what Jordan said, is like there is a skill set that acts as the backbone for the game. And, and there is a level of competency that players have, the successful ones, sort mm -hmm. of to paraphrase Matt Damon's quote from Rounders. Why do you think the same five players make the World Series final table every single year? You think they're the lucky, luckiest guys in the world? That's you know not true. The same five guys don't make the same final table. But uh, to his point, he's right in a way, which is that uh, over the long haul, over the long term, the, the good players, the skilled ones mm -hmm. win out and they're successful. And the fact that poker does have more skill than a lot of the other uh, games of chance that you could see at a casino, I think that qualifies it for for sports status and, and, and for being a sport because it, it uses so many tools. And uh, there is a, even a physical component to it, where like the, the aspect of stamina um, and having to grind out these tournaments day in and day out and to go to these places and these sort of unfavorable environments that both Matt Damon and Edward Norton find themselves in and rounders. Those are the same types of adversities that uh, I think athletes face when when going into like uh, opposing stadiums, right, uh, to play against fans that they hate or uh, against teams that they dislike. And that competitive juice really translates to poker. Um, the fact that y you could be a, a winner or a loser and uh, you have that sort of fortitude to use your skill set to win, I think, separates it. Yeah, right. And it has a venue, right? And a venue where you can have an audience, not quite as well as others, but you can definitely have an audience. Um, you can have commentators who are actively... Uh, it's a big part of it from yeah. like the watching it perspective. Like you said, it makes it like, at least for me, like the digestible part of it being a sport for someone who doesn't really play it and like can just watch it. Like the commentary, like you mentioned, the player's passion and like the back and forth shit talking between some of them and like the drama, which is always a big part of all sports, be it professional wrestling or NBA, any of it, right? Really like is a sell. And then also in the background, which is it looms in all sports is like money on the line. That be it contracts and all that. So that's always just a big thing that really like, you know, makes it official. And what gets you to go to it, right? The idea, like obviously the big prizes and stuff, but like you said, like that's a 
a job, if you will. It sanctions it. Um, and this one, like the way it was sanctioned both by ESPN and like when you really get into it, you can see why they'd want to promote it as a sport versus something else. Definitely. And I love the way that the development of the game of the tournament plays a factor in the strategic scenarios of the players. So like their level of risk or risk aversion is constantly in flux and constantly changing as well. So I was just thinking of like, there are times when a player will be very conservative, right? And I'm thinking like a soccer team who has a two goal lead. You watch a soccer game, they just start sitting on it basically. And it becomes a boring game. And you see the same in poker, right? Where someone basically will not do anything but just call or fold, call and fold, call and fold until they have like a super hand. And we, they, they bring that up in, I think rounders, but it might've been another movie I saw recently, right? But um, once you get a significant enough lead in a poker tournament, you kind of just can defeat your opponent by attrition, right? Just like slow attrition. Like the, the great will just kind of suffocate you out at a certain point if they win a few big hands. Um, which is absolutely quintessential. Um, so there, there is that element too. I also was thinking that, you know, ESPN is being more and more daring in their programming, right? We see all types of stuff now. We see spelling bee contests on ESPN, right? So that also very much stretches the definition of sport. We see, like I mentioned a second ago, esports and so forth. So I love that though. I love that they're giving more intellectual games, contests, tournaments, and inclusivity in this world um, because these people who are prepared and practice just as rigorously as many athletes and it, it can be riveting entertainment um, and drama and it has an existential element. So now that we've broken down a ton of poker movies and also spelled out some of the nuances of whether it's a sports movie or not, let's get into our movie of the day our movie of the episode, Rounders. And we've already brought it up quite a few times, right? But it is perhaps the first movie I would say almost anyone will think of when you bring up poker movie. It's the first movie that comes to my mind. For no other reason, I texted my brother, what's your number one poker movie last week? Because we're starting this. And first thing he said was Rounders. And 1998 film, a really big year, a big period for Matt Damon. And also a film that plays off his breakout film which is goodwill hunting right it's a it's a very cold looking movie it's set in adjacent to like an ivy league world and he's like kind of a poor blue collar proletarian kind of with a foot in like legal uppity hard-working college student yeah right right hard-working college dude and minus the hard accent in this one minus the hard r so you have a definite vibe and for me Watching this, I couldn't think of a, a film that's almost more 1998. Very Miramax. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, that was a good one. It's tainted as that is now. But uh, but yes, I, I have an affinity actually for these films. Um, I love the voiceover. It gave me vibes of Fight Club often. There's this sort of melancholy to it. A kind of Xanax level mutedness to his. It's slightly on the depressive side to me um, mm-hmm. in, I, in a way that I love. And filled with great characters. And a film that really shows you how a gambler can approach this hobby sport game in two different ways, right? There's the grinding way, right? That's the way you go as a consistent, predictable, stalwart professional, right? And that is one half of Matt Damon's character. And then there's this other half that wants to just go for the free-for-all, right? And it's a film that has a great arc, as most sports movies does. It starts with a contest. There's a big, dramatic, resonant finale to this contest. 
then there's the meat of the character development for the film. And then there's the full arc in which we get to have the rematch, right? It's the yes. rematch trope. And it does that extremely well. Mm-hmm. And it has one of the most odd and iconic performances as well by John Malkovich <laughs> of the 90s. And as silly of a point as that is, I think that's a, that's a neat way for me to pass the Oreo to you guys. Uh, and I just want to hear your take real quick. And also you can kind of get into your thoughts on rounders, but what did everyone think of John Malkovich's performance? I mean, the accent just, of course he's always over the top, but I mean, this is almost the next level garish to me. What are some of your initial thoughts on rounders in your memories? I'll start with you, Matt. Yeah, I mean, Malkovich's performance is, is an all-time great, right? Uh, hanging around, this kid's got alligator blood. Check, 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 <laughs> check, check. Um, my, come on. That performance kind of uh, also epitomizes like the, the, the idea or describes the idea of tells on players and the psychology of it, which is an, a neat kind of trick. But Teddy KGB, that character, to kind of stay in the pantheon of rewatchability a lot of the time, I think you need a villain that, that's as memorable and as uh, colored as Malkovich is in this film. And he he lives up to every absurd and, and odd quirk that, that, that he brings to the table, uh, literally in that movie. But yeah, Rounders was, was one of those films. It kind of caught everyone at the right moment. And it, as you alluded, it comes right off of uh, Good Will Hunting in 96, The Rainmaker, which I think is a really underrated Coppola movie. One of the better like John Grisham uh, adaptations at a time when they were just thrown around like, you know, like candy. And uh, Edward Norton off of Primal Fear and then The People versus Larry Flint. So you got those two as the lead mm-hmm. and uh, Brian Koppelman and David Levine as the writers. And that also, in addition to John Dahl as, as the director, and John Dahl was kind of the neo-noir guy of the 90s. And between Red Rock West and The Last Seduction, I think you have like two of, to this day, movies that are kind of unparalleled, especially Last Seduction in terms of like the erotic thriller, the noir genre. So this was the right guy to do this kind of movie, to do what you you mentioned earlier, which is a more darkly lit rooms, more uh, sinister vibes, the melancholy state. And um, Coppum and Levine, who are the creators of Billions, now the TV show, so they, they've clearly stayed in, in, the, uh, in the industry. And their dialogue is kind of superb, right? It, it almost... You, you feel the writers as part of the film as much as you do as a director. And this movie was so oft quoted, I think between this and Swingers for like five years before, I don't know, Old School and Borat and Anchorman <laughs> came out that like everyone was, was just throwing this film around. Even if you didn't really get what it was saying or whether it was true or not, there was a rhythm to the language. And not only that, but sort of like the character names were awesome, right? Like Joey Kanish, the John Turturro character, <laughs> um, or Graham. And, and a w- Worm is just phenomenal, right? And yeah, a, a lot of actors who were kind of big at that time also were in it. Gretchen Mull, who is kind of underrated. She, she was really good in a lot of films at that time and then just disappeared or was used less. Famke Janssen in a, mm-hmm. in a small role as the kind of what you were mentioning with Gretchen Mall as the shrew. I think Famke Janssen also kind of plays that version of it. It's not really well developed or, or uh, intense. And, that, and that's that's OK, right? Because it's it, it's a bromance film. But Rounders was one of those films also that benefited from DVD sales. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a clip circulating this week on Twitter of Damon getting interviewed by the hot ones. Is that the podcast name whatever the hot sauce one and he's comparing why do films get made now that or don't get made now the compared to the ones that did 20 years ago and he says that the dvd sales was 
a big component of why films were financed and greenlit because uh, producers knew and studios knew that they could kind of rely if the movie bombed at the box office, they had this back end plan B to collect money and, co and collect sales. And Rounders was one of those examples where the DVD was just circulated, made uh, tons of money um, and had a sort of a second life. And uh, it found an audience, found people. And the Big Lebowski, I think Fight Club around that time were also yeah. in a similar vein, right, of uh, being DVD finds. But yeah, the merging of all these moments for a lot of the creative people involved, where poker was headed with, uh, I mentioned the whole cam and the fact that you could see players' cards. And then with Chris Moneymaker winning World Series in 2003 as sort of a getting in off a satellite as, as a local accountant who wasn't a poker player at all, the poker ecosphere, I think, benefited this film in, in a huge amount and uh, kind of changed the way, I think, I think poker became cool again. And, and I think that's kind of the, the thing that makes the game keep on living and, and why uh, TV was sort of so attuned to it. There is a sense of sleekness and uh, uh, sexiness or, or, or a sense of cool to the game, not only casinos, but poker especially. So I love that. Yeah, definitely a sense of cool, right? A, a nonchalance, a control and a composure within chaos, right? Because you're, you are at the end of the day, like within unexpected chance scenarios. And it's all about how phlegmatic you can be when the chips are stacked against you um, as much as when you're like in, in the lead, right? And like you said, endlessly quotable. I think your Poker Face article pretty much starts with that infamous quote, never ending in, in a certain like time period in the early aughts, a few years after when this was like a DVD movie. If you can't spot the sucker, you are the sucker. And it starts off the movie basically, and it really sets the tone for just how cool this is. And the quotes just keep coming. I was just floored by the screenwriting of this movie. And I'm glad you brought up the screenwriters, right? Billions is excellent. They also wrote and I believe even directed Runner Runner, which I think is it's a, a smaller genre movie. It's not anything to really write home about, but I liked it a lot. It's one with Justin Timberlake and Ben Affleck. And it's mm -hmm. kind of also still in the same milieu, the same ecosystem. That's one that I would stick up for a while. And it's about a Princeton grad who is going to Costa Rica to confront an online gambling tycoon. Yeah, I don't know the details because it's a little vague, but I remember loving that movie and it definitely has a strong gambling subplot as well. But you see also John Dahl, right? He did Joyride around this time, Unforgettable. He was just really good at these, these genre movies. He really carved a little spot. Whatever he, he operated in, he brought in noir elements. You see them here, absolutely. But they're sometimes a little obscured and I love that, right? The noir is here, um, definitely in the voiceover. And the and, dialogue and, too dialogue the sort of hauntedness the sort of shadowy solitariness of it but at the same time it's it's not like screaming noir to you so really i actually have a different take because i okay. felt like when paul slacked me about it, he just watched rounders i think i said probably quote like a quintessential matt damon like 90s movie right and that's how i remember it i really do remember it like i really like was drawn into it but and i remember actually liking the noir aspects back then but this one i felt was like really heavy-handed and mm -hmm. more on damon's end because like you just mentioned all those side characters are awesome Duturo kills it malkovich is like over the top but genuinely like of the time like it reminds me of like christopher walken and pulp fiction right where he just kills it plays like himself in a way but love it like that but i felt like damon when i was watching it this time i had like a detachment to damon's delivery like when he gives that line, like, I'm retired, I've made promises, I'm just a law student. Like you can see it like the detective 
with like a cigarette, right? And like, it's his, it's his voiceover. His voiceover, I think, wasn't doing it for me. I don't remember that. I kind of, like you said, I've not, you like knocked out of the park. Like how I remember like being stoked about it. I remember like, like knock, waking up my roommate and be like, hey man, have you see this Rounders movie? You like poker? He's like, no, I'm like, let's fucking watch it tomorrow, dude. You like it, right? I was like super hyped. Cause like you said, like all the movies you have are like Big Lebowski, Fight Club. Like I love those. I'm like, he'll, he'll dig this shit. And like, he totally did. I did too. I rewatched it. But this time, I felt like the the like noir detective elements were a little overblown and it wasn't necessarily in the style because I think the shots of the city are beautiful. Like, again, it's very much of its time. And it has that sexy vibe and like that underbelly. There's a there's a weird like nefariousness to each scene. It's just classic 1950s bar, but it's hitting a lot of just tropes and tend them hard. I'm not like minding it, but I, it was Matt Damon for me in this viewing this time at this point in my life. And I was really surprised as I was watching it. Um, even Edward Norton, I remember really liking more. He was a little detached, but for me, it was, it was Damon and the noir aspects. I think I was a little, I was harping a little bit. So I thought that was interesting. Like you said, like for you, it was a little, um, not quite as heavy handed, but I think for me, it's really that voiceover and him kind of overdoing it. It wasn't as like fluid as like bound, right. Where you have like all that stuff, like the erotic thriller, um, that kind of like snappy dialogue, the cliche mafioso, that hyper masculinity, which is relevant in this, right? Uh, but I think it like bound it, like really ties it all together, like the Wachowski sisters and that one. And I feel like this one, it was like the Samir Coffee was doing that and like the sound as well. But I feel like some of the players in this one when I was watching, it kind of stood out as as weak links in, in the in the overall picture for me. Gotcha. I, I I feel yeah. I do think that one thing that works so well, right, is the jargon of poker is ready-made and tailor-made for noir right because it's such a rich jargon and i think this film does a really good job of balancing the jargon keeping it real keeping it technical keeping it very esoteric yet keeping it accessible right because i'm not an an expert on all of the vernacular of poker Mm -hmm. by any means right but i was picking up every single line right like the voiceover too helps you he's guiding you along right he tells you like the high stakes attract the flounders who attract the sharks right Immediately, I know what that means, right? And they're showing you the pictures to go with it, right? They're showing you like the rich Ivy League kids. And then they're showing you the guys who can actually play, right? At at this place. And so the semiotic system, right? The the connection between what is being spoken and what is being shown, I think is pretty pretty strong. It's very well edited, this movie. Especially when Um, you get that group scene when they're in Atlantic City, right? And it's like the rounders versus like the tourists. Mm-hmm. That was one, like you said, where you get like this full cast and like, just like you said, with the sharks and like the flounders and like the, the insideness of it all. And, and like that community, that that's another scene that just really stuck out to me this time where you get like, kind of like the full cast and like that elevated discussion too, of like what each player, where they're at in their lives, what their goals are, like the grinder versus like you said, the guy who shoots their shot. I love, I love the way that that scene has, serves as like an intersection for the movie. Right. And, and it's one of those rare instances where you get to see like these pretty big actors who are big actors now kind of just get a flex a bit outside of Damon and, um, Norton, who do great. Like I said, Norton, I, I like him. I love Worm. Worm is like, he he does such a great job of being that annoying friend that you have to like protect. And like, it's just a good Norton role that's going to set him up for such other great roles down the line. Yeah. You, you know, it cheers me up when I'm feeling shitty, rolled up aces over Kings, check raising tourists at the Mirage <laughs> or whatever. So. I love that line. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And and the cinematographer, Jean-Yves Escoffier, we've talked about the lighting of the film and, and how terrific it looks. And he, that felt like the right guy to employ at the time, right? He, he worked on Gummo, the Harmony Current film, and then The Crow in, in 96. And so this is someone who's who's aware of darkly lit, you know, post Fincher era lighting and and how to make a film feel both, you know, seen and sort of unseen. And I think to this day or in modern day, I feel like a, a lot of DPs or directors could use that lesson. It feels like so many films are so darkly lit for no reason. It feels like it takes away from the plot. 
and a lot of films from this era seem to use a good balance between keeping yeah. an audience's attention, but but also looking really eerie uh, and defined. Definitely. And I also saw this film is very tightly scripted. Of course, not as elaborate or gimmicky as like, let's say, Memento. But mm-hmm. I do feel like this is a very economical movie, which works quite well because it's all about economics of life. Right. And it has a lot to say and it doesn't leave you with any easy, digestible feel good theme as it shouldn't, right? Because at the end of the day, you're still thrown to luck and whim. And we have every archetype within the poker milieu, and they all represent different roles and approaches to it, right? We have John Turturro, who is the grinder, right? He is responsible. He pays for his family. He tries to help out those around him, but he won't do anything dumb, even when his friends get in dire straits, because you know what? That's not his way of life. He doesn't get embroiled in those types of things. He was my favorite character, man. That oh. guy, I love Turturro. He's always underrecognized, <laughs> but I fucking loved him in this. He was just so cool. Um, He's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Then we had Edward Norton, Worm, perfect Edward Norton role. Very different, right? Because he's kind of playing the Brad Pitt role in Fight Club. He's kind of the devilish alter ego. He's the yeah. bad boy, right? He's the, the transgressive one. He's the hustler. He's the liar. He's the schemer, right? He's the one who's base stealing and gets caught and gets them beat up and doesn't give a shit, right? Um, definite vibes of Fight Club when they're in the parking lot with, you know, black eyes. He's kind of joyous about it. You, you sense that there's some sort of ebullience about it because he has nothing to lose, right? He's, he kind of lives his life that way. Then you have Matt Damon, who really is the middleman, right? He both aspires to be a grinder, right? We see that in the very beginning, right? He knows the importance of having rigor, right? Being steadfast, having discipline and a system. Yet he knows and speaks about this very well in the plot that like there are moments where safe play will get you nowhere. And I think that it is very troubling to wrap your mind around like a lot of his decisions, especially in the end. I, I've read some people who are very angry about the movie as seen as like this fairy tale or whatever, a risk taking, but it also felt logical and as much of a like fable it was, it didn't have any easy read. And I love that about yeah. it. Yeah. It also kind of fits for the purpose of our podcast, like, cause I like the way you kind of broke them down for the sake of the rules within like the noir, but like for the sake of making this, like I advocating that this is a sports movie, like Turturro is also like the quintessential coach role. And we have Worm, who's like a teammate slash posse. And what I mean by posse is the dude attached to the talent who's like Matt Damon. And just like you said, it also follows the classic boxing metaphor or boxing structure, I'd rather say, right? It's broken down, you said, into rounds in which you go back and forth and you give and you take and you get knockdowns, right? And those knockdowns are delivered through hands, which is great. I love it's such a great delivery. But like I said, that's one of the things I think about this movie and the way it kind of twists that too, kind of just what you said, but the basic structure of the game itself, the overarching like moral integrity or moral what's at stake, right, is through Totoro trying to point out, you know, this is the system, like being the coach. And just like you said, Matt Damon being the star who I can see it kind of coincides with maybe some people's takes of this, who's both has the gift and also defies the coach and then still pays off the posse, which is kind of suits of some of these other like sports movies kind of covered like High Flying Bird and some of these other ones we'll get into with like the extension of like, you know, how your friends and coach and that those relationships coincide with like the talent, which kind of goes into like, again, my reading of it as a sports movie, when you look at Matt Damon as like prospect, right. And getting voices and all that stuff. But again, I do think Totoro though, is just such like a authoritative figure in this and like that looming, like 
ultimate judgment, right? But Matt Damon does kind of walk in the face of that judgment based on the conclusion, right? So yeah, so, yeah, so I feel like it's complicated, but I do feel like it checks off a lot of those boxes that we talk about all the time on this podcast. And that I think is part of why that final act is so captivating is because we rely on those, again, what audiences are trained for, uh, relying on these competitive like metaphors, right? The metaphor of battle, the metaphor of sport, the metaphor of defeat, right? With cards. And like, that plays so well into the noir with the idea of death, you know, the looming result of the game, right? Is that he can't pay this thing off. Therefore, he's he's not necessarily dead, but he's fucked, right? And I think that really brings it into just like the way we talk about Queen's Gambit and stuff like that, what makes it so compelling and why you're really stuck for that last act. Because the last act of this movie is probably the best part about this movie. Yeah, what's also cool is the level of sportsmanship here, too. Uh, I love the sportsmanship between John Malkovich and Matt Damon, especially at the end where the sort of mobster-esque guys, right? The guys that, you know, run the prostitute ring and so forth um, want Malkovich to retaliate. And he won't. Like, Mm -hmm. he he respects the fact that he was defeated, right? That's a huge part of the grand sports culture. But it is odd. And you brought this up. Uh, I want to hear Matt's take too. That you feel like Churchuro serves as like the father figure, the authority figure, the coach figure, mm-hmm. the mentor figure, whatever you want to say, right? He's the, the good angel on this shoulder. Mm-hmm. You got you got the evil devil on the right shoulder, right? Which is Edward Norton. What do you think about Matt Stamen's decision? Because it definitely goes in the face of Churchuro, right? Because he, he ends up going far beyond the realm of taking his big win and kind of going home, which is a grinders thing, right? You treat it like a job, you're patient, you learn to win a little at a time. He definitely goes into the full tilt mode, right? You can't be too careful. What do you What do you think? Do you think that it is a commentary on synthesis? Um, do you think it's just a happy ending? Um, and where do you think it fits in all these other ones? Because in my opinion, a lot of them actually, I'm trying to rack my brain, but they end up with big losses. I think that they love that trope in the poker movie because they ultimately want to say that this is like something to not aspire to, right? Like the Cincinnati right. kid, for example, like they end up losing everything and learning like life is more important or just being humble. Here, we don't get that. We get a very different narrative. And so it has to really earn that to make us feel like the lucky break maybe is sometimes deserved. So what's your take on this? I, I think very complex and ambivalent ending. It's an interesting ending and it kind of plays into maybe like a noir-esque trope. And I, and I know Roger Ebert uh, review of the film, I pulled up Rounder sometimes has a noir look, but it never has a noir feel because it's not about losers, or at least it doesn't admit it is. It's essentially a sports picture in which the talented hero wins, loses, faces disaster, and then is paired off one last time against the champ. It's kind of an ideal ending for the way the film plays out. And it's sort of a, a win or a happy ending for Damon's character as he is uh, driven off into the sunset and kind of like a Western um, is is due West, right? He's, he's gone for Las Vegas. He's going to go play in the World Series of Poker, the one he keeps talking about. I think, you know, one of the Hollywoody things that's probably inaccurate in, in this film or definitely inaccurate is the fact that Damon plays for his whole bankroll, right? He sacrifices and puts up you know, everything that he's worth on this one game against Malkovich, which any like, uh, you know, normal poker player, you would never do that in your life, right? You would never just uh, play your whole, everything you have, everything you've earned uh, on this one game that could go either way, even if you're playing well. But, you know, it's a Hollywood movie and uh, you need to sort of heighten the stakes to some degree and and, and to make it feel more realized and and, uh, um, intensified, which they do. So um, I can't fault them completely. But yeah, that ending, it is amusing. and, And I like that he doesn't sort of end up with the girl, with Gretchen Maul, who he was kind of off and on with, and she kind of uh, supports also his decision. It, it, there's some sportsmanship 
from a relationship standpoint uh, with her kind of saying, hey, this is your destiny. Um, and uh, speaking of destiny, I think one other actor who gives a terrific performance is Martin Landau in yeah. this movie as the judge. And this is fresh off of uh, winning the Oscar for Ed Wood, stealing it from um, Sam Jackson and Pulp Fiction. And but he's great here. He's he's kind of like the Joey Kanish part two father figure, right? He has a lunch with with Damon and he there's that famous scene, which is a great one where Damon reads everyone's hand. It's the judge's game. And uh, he, he he tells Matt that, you know, you can't run from who we are. Our destiny chooses us kind of a, a little bit hokey, but but still very much what an elderly judge would also say in that moment. And uh, this, you know, speaks also to how important casting is in a film and, and how if you get the right older guys or the right younger ladies or uh, younger men like Damon and Norton at this moment, it, it kind of puts everything into perspective and, and, and creates, it makes the dialogue easier. And, and hearing these actors speak these words does a lot for this picture. I love the scenes with Martin Lundell, both when he returns at that restaurant right and they have that great discussion where Lando goes into his own life story right it's a sort of Jewish apostate right like he his whole family wanted to be a rabbi and mm -hmm. he disgraced them by becoming you know an academic slash lawyer one thing that slightly bummed me though about the movie was that I don't think they did a good enough job of showing the parallels between gambling culture or dynamics and legal culture and dynamics. Like mm. as a lawyer, you have to have a poker face. You have to, you know, work people, you have to bluff and so forth. And they had this really, I thought, ripe opportunity that was kind of squandered. They just pretty much used that as a background setting and a sort of relationship tension. They didn't go in any deeper into that. And I thought that, that was a little weak because I wanted to also know like how smart was Matt Damon? Was he a good lawyer? Like, I just like, it felt a little <laughs> peripheral. Like I didn't quite get that fleshed out at all. You know, I wanted to really kind of get an understanding of who he was through that world. And it was never provided except for he was kind of what everyone thought he was scattered, unreliable, yeah. and kind of deserving to be slightly marginalized in his own right. So yeah, you, you definitely get the vibe that he's one of those academics or one of those people who are in a system and not fully in it, doing their own thing, just kind of going through the motions. But yeah, to me, it was a little underdeveloped and, and it was just so perfect for developing more layerings, right? More echoings of destiny, of duels, right? Face-offs. Mm -hmm. But that also would be tough to fit in a movie that wants to be as economical, as I said, is this, right? To have a whole nother subplot like that might have made this a bit bloated. I have to recognize that as well while I, while I critique it. But yeah, just a really interesting take on the noir elements. I, for me, almost the most noir elements were like when he quotes all these people, and I don't even know who they are. Doyle Brunson, Johnny Chan, Phil Hellman, right? Constantly quoting all these. Doyle Brunson is one I recognize. Who is that? Like I said, I don't know a whole lot about poker, but I do know that he had like that book that every poker player like quoted. Like everyone I knew who played poker and like, wasn't like the most avid reader could quote this book like Shakespeare. And so like, he, I know he's a big deal in the thing. So maybe Matt, you can tell us more about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, those were kind of the three Mount Rushmore poker players at the time, yeah. right? Um, th there's a terrific scene where uh, Matt Damon is playing heads up one-on-one -on -one in a hand against Johnny Chan and I think uh, Atlantic City at the Mirage or something. And he's like, you know, what'd you have, John? I don't remember or something like that. Yeah. And uh, it, it was Johnny fucking Chan. 
And he's, I think he's talking to Worm about the moment. But yeah, th- these were kind of uh, the guys who had the most World Series of Poker bracelets. And Doyle Bronson was known as the godfather of poker. He'd been around forever. And, and the book that he wrote is called Super System. And that was all, you know, like a Bible for poker players, like mm-hmm. you're mentioning. And it's ironic and, and kind of funny that this film influenced such a large assortment of players. And it, it was such an influence on getting all these great players to uh, play competitively and to get in the game. But those same players that loved it and looked up to it were also the ones in charge of changing the way the game was played Hmm. Um, away from this old school Doyle Brunson, you know, psychological tells or feels or intuition to Hmm. a more mathematical game, to a more statistical game, to something that could be played online where players are seeing so many more hands per hour. So their Hmm. experience is sped up that much more and much more beneficial. And that's why a lot of the online guys are good in person too, because they've played out these scenarios uh, uh, many more times than the guys who play in person where they don't see as many hands because it's just slower and you can't play more than one table in person. So um, yeah, that that irony is fitting, but those guys were a big deal to the game and they're still around now. Phil Helmuth is still competitive now and and winning. The other guys are a little bit older and and I, I was actually in Vegas last month with a couple with my poker crew friends from Pittsburgh or from our college days. And uh, Johnny Chan just like walked by me and uh, I was like, oh, that was, he, he looks different. Um, so I had a little bit of a Mike McDermott rounders <laughs> moment. I wanted, I wanted to challenge him for all my money uh, in, in side room. So I was actually curious and correct me if I'm wrong. Was Johnny Chan the character in the film uh, that Matt Damon played against and actually beat that he reveals later um, with his, I think like, they call it a bear trap, right? Where you kind of like lay waiting and then attack. It's kind of like the reverse bluff. Is it would see that guy? Yeah, that was him. That was the real life poker player playing himself in the movie. That's awesome. That is really cool. And just the way they, like I said, they they reference these names. It feels so Philip Marlowe to me. Something about it. It, it just like referencing the greats. Um, it has this reverence to these outcast greats and just showing them i think it works really well to to set you in and the actual world of poker which also makes me think of like draft day and all these sports movies we talk about jordan which are like docu fiction in a weird way that's not the right word either because that's something different but they're these sports worlds that have elements of the real world in them right they have real espn commentators they have real Mm -hmm. anecdotes of athletes careers right and yet they're Mm -hmm. fictional i think that's interesting it's kind of doing that here too in a way by bringing in some some greats and using them by their names, right? It's not only just taking yeah. like a great poker player and he has a pseudonym, like it's the guy mm-hmm. playing who he is. Gives it a verisimilitude that I find intriguing. So anyways, great conversation. I have two last questions for everyone. Uh, the first one, the Oreo. Is there a technique going on? I, for the life of me, watched it four or five times, wanted to be able to deconstruct or decode this technique because it feels like Matt Damon catches something. He listens to the Oreo. Of course, is it, does the cream go on the right side, the left side? Does it go on both sides? Is it dictating John Malkovich's approach? What do you, what is your take? Or do you not know? I don't catch it. I was in your camp. Every time I've seen this, I've always said, I don't know. My answer is, I don't know. I want to know. (laughs) Well, there was something about him cracking it open, right? And how that correlated with him having like a good hand or or the fact that he was bluffing. And uh, Damon picked up on that tell in specific. The whole process, I think, picking up the Oreo and then cracking it open and listening to it. I think Damon realized that he did that every time he was he was bluffing or something. I, I can't remember the exact details. And uh, uh, House of Games, going back to Mammoth again, also kind of did that. The, the, there was uh, the, the moment of uh, 
Ricky Jay is this real life magician who's also in a lot of Mammoth movies and PTA films. And he's fantastic as one of the villains. He's got a lot of good lines. And I was laughing. I was like rewatching a scene. Joe Montana is like, where am I from? I'm from the United States. I kiss my ass. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 was, I was dying. This is perfect Mammoth. But there's a scene in that where he also fiddling with his ring. And uh, Joe Montana tells Lindsey Krauss that, uh, to pick up on it, to see if he does it in a hand against some other guy, whether he's bluffing. So I wonder if that's like a little homage by... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the rounders folks to, to a prior film, but, uh, yeah, that's my take. That's great. I love that. No, that's definitely sounds like an allusion to that, which is going to be fun for us to kind of go backwards in time mm-hmm. in, in a, in a large way. I also love the fact that for me, I might be wrong, but I read it as the epiphany is sold, right? The, the film clearly tells us Matt Damon catches something and I love not being in on it. It has the same function as lost in translation, right? The whisper at the end where you see something resonant and powerful and yet it remains inscrutable to you. Mm-hmm. I love that tease. I think it, it's always masterful when done right. I think it is done right here. I, I think it works infinitely better that we don't crack the code because then it's just some sort of simplistic narrative device. I, I think it it has a whole different gravitas because of that. So I want to hear everyone's final take on Rounders. Is it an underdog movie or is it an overrated movie? And feel free to contextualize this however you'd like. So I will start with you, Matt. What's your final verdict on Rounders? Yeah, I mean, I think as a movie, it's it's an underdog. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. Obviously, we, we've talked about it here. I think if anything's overrated, is it's the some of the poker playing aspects in terms of perhaps accuracy or, or the stuff that happens, and, and namely only like the fact that he's playing for his whole bankroll towards the end of the film and just going on a whim. And that's like stuff that uh, we've seen a lot of gambling movies, though. So that's, that's a common trope, uh, whether it's James Kahn and the Gambler or uh, Adam Sandler's character in Uncut Gems. These are people willing to sacrifice every single penny they have on a game of chance. I guess in Damon's case, there's definitely a lot more skill and there's some prowess there. But uh, underdog film, I don't think it's overrated. Whatever the reverse of overrated is in terms of, uh, it's not underrated because everyone knows it, but in terms of rewatchability, this is one of those films you you want to show your friends. As Jordan was saying, that was definitely me, like coming over to my friend's house in high school saying, you know, you're going to like poker after this movie. And, and he did, the, my friend Logan. But uh, it's a film you can watch with anyone at any time. You know the moments, you know the quotes, you know the, the feeling you get, but you still hold on to it as you're in it. So underdog, rounders. Awesome. Jordan, how about your take? Man, I was torn on this one, like in terms of like how to gauge it. Cause there's like, just like you said, there's a lot of stuff that resonates and is lasting and impactful and it's still held up. I'm going to split my ranking, which I never really do. The movie is underrated. Like I said, as a sports movie, I think it's a good sports movie. Sticking with my original thesis, I think this is a sports movie and it's a pretty good one in terms of like our discussion and the tropes it hits. I do think it's an overrated Matt Damon film in my mind though. That is one thing I took away from this. He's had much better roles in the 90s. I think for whatever reason had rose colored glasses when I thought of this one in my head. But yeah, I think when I was watching this time, this is much more of a better, like, like you said, Totoro movie. When I go watch it now, he's the one I'm kind of w- looking at, not really Damon. So that was interesting for me. I really had a different view in my head when I went to go watch it. So that's why I was a bit torn. But ultimately, I mean, I, I do enjoy the movie. Like I was a little detached from it. But like I said, that last act, I think is like it, it sells the movie. It's a good last act. It's always a case with sports movies because they're very cliche. And we went through this one is too, but the way it kind of wraps up in a bow and within that neo-noir context, it just works pretty well. Like, it's fine that it has a happy ending. Like, it's it's okay. I don't dislike that. 
Perfect. I had a very different revisiting of this because I don't think I've ever sat through it from start to finish until this round. I <laughs> saw scenes and entire stretches of this movie hundreds of times. I feel like it was one of my brother's favorite films and he would constantly be watching it. And I think it's because I had seen so many separate scenes mm -hmm. just walking in the room and like hanging out for a little bit and thinking I'd seen it and memorizing parts of the movie by heart that I was shocked how many scenes I hadn't seen as well. And like I hadn't understood how it worked as a cohesive whole. Mm -hmm. um, so this was such a weird movie for me. It was this movie I had constantly like said, oh yeah, it's one of my favorites, blah, blah, blah. And I meant it, but then I watched it and I was like, I'd never actually sat and watched this whole movie. Like, I don't uh, really know the arc. It's it, those happen. Those happen over like, oh, yeah. there's a few of those movies like that. They're always really funny <laughs> for me. And this was definitely fits in that, that really weird niche category. And I absolutely loved it. I think it is really such a great 90s movie. The dialogue, the screenplay, and anything with a solid screenplay wins in my mind. And this is the screenplay just killer. That's really what, what puts it over in that category for me. But I could see myself by the end of our poker series considering it overrated. And I'm curious mm -hmm. to come back to it because it is, as I mentioned, like the definitive for our generation poker movie. Maybe not for other generations, but for our generation, it is the go-to. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that actually by the end, it'll be considered overrated. Not because I want to see anything fall, but that means we'll find some real gems that I haven't seen yet and that deserve a little more love and adulation. But as a poker movie, I think it's fully deserving of its status as we speak. I think like even Croupier for me even stands like up to it, but I don't think that diminishes this by any chance. I think it's really one of the great 90s films. It's got just such a good vibe. It really hits all the beats for me. It's it's really rewatchable. I rewatched it twice to prep for this. And the second time was as rich as the first. And there's many films we've done recently, which I couldn't sit through another five minutes almost again. <laughs> and I didn't even not like them, right? Uh -huh. But this one's just so jazzy. It's, it's got this yeah. calming, soothing vibe. I just fell into it twice and completely just washed two hours by each time. And I love that. So. So definitely a, a cozy comfort movie for me. Definitely an underdog, which I will return to regularly. There's not many films that are truly rewatchable. And this has that in space. So awesome. This is a really fun combo. We went all over the place. Such a great way to start this series. Thank you so much, Matt, for really bringing all your knowledge and in-depth commentary and insights on all these it was really fun to talk about these with you man yeah no thanks uh, guys so much for having me um i want to make a last point to, to what you said it is such an accessible movie it is so easy to dive into and they make it feel easier than it looks because this is an, a new world to a lot of people at the time and you know even even to us growing up with it and you kind of come away from the film knowing that the creators had a hand in it that they really did their research these were tactile uh streets and places and and pool parlors and underground games it is as much uh, like jorn said it's not really a matt damon movie in many ways it's kind of uh, a teddy kgb or a worm movie like those guys stand out more so uh, or joey kanish or martin landau uh, the supporting cast i think really compliments and shines in this film uh, you know teddy kgb was the guy everyone was quoting or for, <laughs> for years after this uh, it wasn't necessarily damon and perhaps the the true heroes are the screenwriters, are, are Koppelman and, and David Levine, who managed to kind of make their mark in Hollywood. This is their, their first uh, script, their first role, and often the first script is the best or is the most memorable. Uh, you spoke to Reservoir Dogs earlier. 
that has elements of like the killing, the the Kubrick movie also about a heist in a horse racing arena. So yeah, Rounders, really accessible, really special. And it was great to come on here and talk about it with you guys and card movies in general, because I think this genre will keep on giving and will keep on shining new light and new twists. Uh, and it is the coolest setting, I, I think, um, in all of film. Yeah, I love it. It's always been a go-to. Absolutely adore it. And I, I love that both of your takes on Matt Damon. I think he's the anchor of this. It's not a very outlandish performance. He probably has better performances, but he really holds this ensemble piece together. It's like chamber piece. And it really kind of gives into his persona, right? You brought up that whole hot sauce viral thing about how the death of cassette VHS is kind of ruined the film industry in ways. And when you watch that, it's in 2022. Matt Damon still feels like a dad at a poker table. Like <laughs> he still gives that vibe. And I feel like this kind of set Matt Damon's real life persona in stone in a weird way for me. So love that about it. Anyways, Matt, once again, thank you so much. And please tell our audience where they can find you, uh, reach out to you, interact with you and all the fun stuff. Yeah, sure. You can you follow me on Twitter to hear random ramblings of uh, 90s movies, mostly uh, or 80s or 2000s. Who knows? Um, at Yager Watch. 68 that's a hockey reference nice. um for, for the real ones out there aka jordan so Respect. um <laughs> i have the jersey <laughs> oh wow all right Yo, no yeah. big deal um yeah we, the sudden death is definitely coming at some point I'll, oh I'll... Yeah. you will be back for sudden death we will talk yager we'll talk luke robotype we'll talk iceberg nice <laughs> Yeah, so at Yagerwatch68 on uh, on Twitter, I think that's the the best avenue. And you'll kind of I'll post links to random articles when when they get published and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, we'll check them out there and read all of his content when it when it's published. And we look forward to speaking more movies with you soon. Definitely Sunday. That's gonna be fun. We'll geek out about my love oh, yeah. for the Yamari Yager. Lemieux era of the penguins. Yeah. I had I was a huge penguins fan at that time. Yep, I had a jersey. I was like what seven, and I had a penguins jersey and an avalanche jersey. Yep. <laughs> you could call me a bandwagon fan, but it was weird for a California kid to have those. Those are my choices. <laughs> so, yeah, yep. good times. All right, thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to going into a super deep dive into the world of poker in the upcoming months. So please stay tuned. We'll kind of go off the cuff. There's so many good ones to pick from. We might have to draw from a hat. Be prepared to be surprised. Thanks for listening, y'all. <laughs>